From the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, this is Taxed and Wasted, Corona Break Edition, where we bring you all the news that has nothing to do with coronavirus from around the world. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Hello and welcome to Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. This is the fourth in our series of Corona Break, where we try to touch the news from around the world that has little to do with coronavirus. It's hard sometimes, but uh, we at least try to keep it separated from the central issue. We're going to turn now to Australia, to Virgin Airlines Australia specifically. The airline now has 20 bidders who are considering uh, purchasing the airline. Among them is Andrew Forrest, who I'm sure you'll know. He's, uh, let's put it this way, he's a wealthy Australian. And it seems that there was this narrative out there that what we had to do was put government money into Virgin Australia. Otherwise, it would collapse, people would lose their jobs, and that would just be a a catastrophe. And I think that this shows that that was all completely, complete BS, really. Because it was obvious that if Virgin Australia had any real worth, there was an inherent worth and there was money to be made there in the future, that either Richard Branson, the billionaire owner, or the other four international multi-billion dollar companies that also own Virgin Australia would have saved the business. Now, uh, we received a comment on social media uh, today, I believe, uh, which is a few days away from when you'll be listening to it, that said, well, Richard Branson doesn't have $4.4 billion in the bank, nor do these multinational businesses. What they have is assets uh, that go up to $4.4 billion. And that's true, but they're not cash poor. They They have money. And so if it was worth saving, they would. And it turns out the Virgin is worth something because there are people that want to buy it. And the greater point here is enough with the talk of government bailouts. Really, enough, because A, Virgin Australia is not providing anything to the market that can't be provided by another business, and B, if it's worth something, the private market will come in. The, yeah. So, so that, that's something that I think um, is good news. I'm, I'm perfectly happy for Virgin Australia to continue to exist. I just don't want my money paying for it. Uh, we're going to move now to the United States because it was a slow news week in Australia. There, there, a few things happened, but we're going to be talking to Amanda Stoker about that in a little bit. Uh, So we're going to move now to the election in the United States. And it turns out that Joe Biden, in addition to just uh, looking like a a frail old man who uh, can barely keep his thoughts together and who seems to be showing signs of dementia, uh, a sexual assault allegation is really, really putting a target on his back and I think is really hurting his chances here. So the, the general narrative here is, well, the general story being told by a woman called Tara Reid is that Biden essentially uh, sexually assaulted her uh, many, many years back. And Biden has basically taken no time to address this at all. He seems to be hiding away from the question. A lot of his allies uh, in the media uh, and in Democrat circles are pretending that they take Tara Reid's allegation seriously, but still believe Joe Biden. And I think what's causing a lot of the problems for Joe Biden is that this is a very 
comparable situation to the situation that we had with Christine Blasey Ford a few years ago and Brett Kavanaugh. Because Br uh, Brett Kavanaugh, obviously, by, by Democrat operatives and by several activists, was considered to be absolutely guilty just because of the accusation made against him, uh, though Christine Blasey Ford's story has a lot to do with, it has a lot in common with, uh, with Tara Reid's story in terms of it having no real evidence not being reported to the police at the time, that it's just an allegation. It's many, many, many years old. But Tara Reid, for example, remembers the time and the place when this happened. Uh, the people who Tara, the people who Tara Reid cited as as uh, witnesses of her story at the time have come forth and said, "Yes, I do remember Tara telling me about these things." Whereas Christine Blasey Ford, uh, all the people that she mentioned came forth and said, "No, we don't remember this. I don't have any recollection of a party or of Christine Blasey Ford saying these things." And also, recently there was a clip uh, from uh, what's this? Uh, an old CNN show from the time the Tara Reid is citing, and Larry King, that was it, uh, where Tara Reid's mother actually called into Larry Reid, into, um, into the show, and said, you know, my daughter had some issues with, uh, with the senator that she was working for, and we don't know what to do. So a lot of evidence is, is kind of piling up. Now, it's still an allegation. It's possible even that it's not true. But I think what a lot of people are seeing is a level of hypocrisy here, and this is not, this is not helping who is already a very vulnerable, old, uh, sad candidate. Uh, in other American news, uh, aliens. <laughs> aliens are here. They've made contact, and there's irrefutable proof. Or, or maybe I'm exaggerating just a tiny bit. Let me put it this way. The government has finally um, given the public some videos of un unidentified flying objects. Uh, it's really cool. They're videos from 2004. And it's, it's what looks kind of like a tic-tac. Uh, on a screen, and it's moving around the uh, around 20 times as fast as uh, certain military airplanes can. And obviously, there's a lot of different explanations for this. Some of it, an explanation could be that this is government technology that is not yet made available to the public. Another is that it's some kind of foreign government technology. Uh, this could also be some kind of strange. Uh, phenomenon having to do with the ca uh, the camera and the, and the sensors that picked it up. Uh, but it's not entirely impossible. I'm just saying, I, I, I'm mostly a skeptic. But to say that it is impossible that, that it's aliens, I, I just think is a little bit, uh, is getting ahead of ourselves. Let's put it that way. And the last point that I want to touch really quickly, and I'd love to hear your opinion. If you are listening to this, take the time to tag us on Twitter and tell us what you think. Because as people have been stuck at home with their kids, there seems to be a lot of uh, momentum behind the homeschooling movement. And with this momentum comes a lot of pushback against homeschooling. So Harvard released uh, a paper uh, where, by the way, the image that they put on their, on their social media for, for this paper where they oppose homeschooling had a book that said algebra, but algebra was misspelled, which is pretty funny. Uh, but they basically explain the evils of, of homeschooling and how kids can suffer terribly at the hands of it and how uh, parents would teach their kids all types of nefarious things. And, um, and that was mocked roundly because it turns out that there's longitudinal studies that show that kids that were homeschooled don't seem to have worse outcomes nor in their work life, in their social life. And in fact, in standardized tests, a lot of the times they do, they do better. America, for example, is now considering homeschool micro-grants. Uh, 
which is interesting, which is kind of, kind of goes in, in, it kind of plays into the um, school choice aspect of things where uh, the money follows a student. And so I just want to know what you all think about this uh, because it's, it's an interesting topic and it seems to be picking up steam. Uh, but we're going to leave it there because we have a very interesting interview with uh, Senator Amanda Stoker. We're going to be playing only a part of that of that interview on today's podcast, but the full interview will be made available on YouTube this week. Please enjoy and thank you for joining us. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Should I say Senator Stoker, rather? No, you should say Amanda, but hi, Amelia. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad to hear it. Uh, I was very, very happy when uh, you agreed to to come on the podcast because the first thing that you said is, I'm happy to do it, but I just don't want to talk about coronavirus, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is great because there's so much more happening in the world. And, and it seems like that's all we're hearing about. So I'm right there with you. Thank you very much. It's um, It's definitely dominated my days because, you know, there's so many people who've got disruption to work and disruption to their ability to access a whole bunch of other services. So um, the opportunity to talk about something else is much appreciated. Yes, I agree. And uh, before we get into into kind of the politics side of thing, which is probably what our uh, listeners are interested in, yeah. I heard that you've uh, been taking on some homeschooling. So well, how, like, like a lot of parents, um, like a yeah. lot of parents, schools have... Um, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, um, been closed. And so my eldest child is in primary school and uh, I've got two others, but they're not school age yet, though they're sort of kindy and so forth have been disrupted. And um, it means that I've got my husband and I working from home for the most part and right. um, also trying to homeschool my eldest. And um, I have a new respect for people who choose to homeschool all the time. Um, right. which, you know, means they're, they're pretty amazing. But um, I will also be looking forward to the moment when um, the schools here in Queensland start listening to the medical advice and are reopening because um, yeah. there's no reason why they don't need to be at school. It's, um, it's a bit bananas. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And uh, I, I can't imagine that it would be easy to balance both work and giving your kids a basic uh, level of education. So I, I can imagine that that would be uh, not super, super easy. Uh, hey, look, but... It's all part of the adventure. Um, and <laughs> it's a hell of a lot less hardship than a lot of people are going through at this point in time. So I am absolutely fine, as is the family. Thank you. Yes, Thank no, you for, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, let's get into it then. So I, there's a couple of important things happening in Australia. Uh, and the first that I want to talk about, probably because it's the first on people's minds, is the COVID Safe app. Which means we don't totally dodge coronavirus. But hey, <laughs> that's okay. I am more than happy to talk about the app. True. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, lots of people have been um, thinking about it and scrutinizing mm. it. And um, this might be a strange thing to hear from um, a politician, but I'm really pleased with the way it's making people think about. Um, their privacy and evaluate, you know, what they do and don't want governments to be able to access, uh, what they do and don't volunteer to sort of commercial and other entities um, mm. by way of giving up their privacy. And we're only going to get good policy on this stuff in circumstances where people 
you know, meaningfully take an interest in um, what they do and don't want governments to know. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think uh, looking kind of at the functionality of the app, I was initially pleased because it seemed like a lot of the, the data that was put on the, the app was anonymized. And mm-hmm. it's true that for some time it is. But yeah. it only takes one contact with one person that inputs uh, that they've been, uh, that they, they tested positive for coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there's a wealth of information that goes straight up to the government and gets uh, decrypted. Is that correct? Yeah, look, that's, that's pretty right. Um, the, the basic structure is that um, the data is collected on your phone. It doesn't mm-hmm. go anywhere. It just gets um, stored up in a 21 days worth of stash of information about uh, where you've been going and who you've had contact with and things like that. Now, um, for people who take their civil civil liberties seriously, as anybody should, mm-hmm. um, the idea that someone is collecting 21 days worth of information about oh where you're going and where you're moving is, is initially uh, pretty confronting. And um, when they said they were doing an app at this national, I'm like, oh, I really don't like the sound of this. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, a bunch of members of parliament, myself included, started saying, well, you know, I get that you're saying this is necessary for us to be able to relax restrictions, but we need to have a whole bunch of protections in there to be able to make it something that um, doesn't represent an enormous encroachment on people's, um, you know, right to go about doing what they're doing without people sticking their nose in their business. So it is true to say that the... um, the contact that you might have, or if you have contact with somebody who has coronavirus, um, then the state health officer, like the, the number one person um, in the state um, bureaucracy that mm-hmm. um, deals with health, has the right to access that information. Now, wow. I mean, that's core to its purpose. Its purpose is to help us track down who has had contact with people who we know have COVID-19. Sure. Um, if, you, if you don't do that, the app doesn't meet its purpose. Um, right. And that is an encroachment upon the privacy of people who find themselves in a position where they have had contact with somebody who has coronavirus. But in many ways, that's there to protect the person who has had contact as mm. much as it is about protecting the public more generally. And so there is a benefit to the individual that comes from a decision to download this app as much as there is um, a benefit to the wider public from their sacrifice of that information, because it is mm. uh, privacy that is being sacrificed. Um, and there is also the, the benefit that comes from us being able to l- reduce the restrictions that we currently face and our ability to get around and interact with the people that we love and whose mm-hmm. company we enjoy. If we want to be able to get back to work, if we want an economy that's able to um, start the process of rebuilding and refiring, then we've got to find ways to manage this risk. And um, for as many people who feel comfortable downloading it um, to do so would be a really good thing because um, it'll mean we are able to reopen the economy again. Um, Now, at the risk of, um, Mm. you know, I know everyone who who listens to your podcast is going to be very concerned about this. They're they're not going to like the idea of it. And, you know, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't like it either. Right. But we have. Have you downloaded it? 
Yeah, I have. I have. Mm. And only after um, only after I found that the ministers responsible took on board a lot of the complaints that people um, like me had made about the need to pr- properly protect that privacy. So this has more mm. privacy protection than any app that has ever been produced by a government in this country. And um, on the analysis of many, it's better than the security you get on any sort of privately run app either. So um, that should give us some reassurance. Sure. Uh, and on the privacy, I, I suppose it's true what you say. There, there, There's kind of an acknowledgement going in that there will be some kind of, some possibility that your data will be seen by somebody. Because if this is a tracing yeah. app, then there's no real tracing without some data. Uh, That's what it's for. It's exactly. for tracing, but only in a narrow set of circumstances. And um, it's just, yeah, it, it shouldn't be understood as a, a general, um, you know, puppeteering of everybody mm. who has the app. Um, but it will mean the disclosure of information of the people who end up having contact with someone who's got COVID. Yeah. Sure. And uh, so I wanted to bring up two things kind of relating to that. And the first I found really, really crucial, and I don't see this uh, this piece of data really being pushed enough, mm-hmm. which is that the government itself has said that we would need something like a 40% adoption rate in Australia, in Australian society, for the app yeah. to be effective, which is mm-hmm. roughly the amount of people that have banking apps on their phone. And so to me, that seems very ambitious that say, to say that the same amount of people that have a banking app on their phone will will put uh, this app that 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 you know is a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of people. Uh, they'll do the same. They, they'll have the same adoption rate. So, isn't isn't that a, a big bump in the road that not enough people are talking about? That if forty percent of the population doesn't get it, we might not really do much with it. Well, the, the short answer is yes. There needs to be a significant number of people who are prepared to give it a go, in order for it to have its desired effect. Um, it's not going to provide us with um, enough of a picture of where the virus is moving um, unless we get a pretty substantial uptake. Now, I'm not sure that the the 40% figure is inflexible. Um, Uh I suspect it will be um, sort of examined in the light of, um, you know, how things are going. But Mm. we, we do need there to be a significant number of people who are prepared to give it a go in order for it to um, facilitate the reopening of the economy because without it, it isn't managing risk in the way that it's intended to. There's a lot more to that interview. So please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcasting app to make sure that you don't miss the full interview with Amanda Stoker later on this week. Thank you for joining us. This has been Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. We'll see you next time.